Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi everyone, Harry here. We'll get on with the show in just a second. This week, we're including our bonus Q&A for patrons in the normal show to give you an idea of exactly what you can expect from it. If you enjoy it and want to sign up, head to patreon.com forward slash manutdweeklypod or look on our Twitter for more information. You can pay anywhere from £1.50 to £20 a month and that money helps support the podcast and this season is allowing us to release two episodes a week instead of one it does make a real difference so maybe you'll become a patron soon if you do thank you very much and on that note thanks to our patrons ethan malcolm steve theo david havar damien don christopher anthony josh adam arman marek michael reed craig simon mod and ted on with the show A very warm welcome to part two of our season preview on the Manchester United Weekly Podcast with me, Harry Robinson and Jack Tate. As always, today on the show, we're reviewing a double game weekend as United took on Atletico Madrid and Real Vallecano in Oslo and Manchester, respectively. We'll talk about the performances of our new signings, Lissandro Martinez and Christian Eriksen, an exciting display from Alejandro Garnacho, the young Argentinian winger. We'll talk about Cristiano Ronaldo, the return of the uh, self-proclaimed king, about Eric Ten Hag's use of the fullback about how the defensive structure has altered so far under him and we'll talk about United's first game of the season against Brighton at Old Trafford Sunday the 7th of August at 2pm UK time there might even be a mention of Frankie de Jong and once again before we jump into discussing the men's team let's reflect on last night's brilliant occasion at Wembley Jack a record-breaking 87,000 and something crowd England winning an international tournament for the first time in our lives Uh, three United players heavily involved in Alessio Russo, Ella Toon, scorer of England's first goal against Germany, and Mary Earps, who made some some brilliant saves in that game. But more than that, more than just the United players, just an incredibly likeable squad leading the way for a new generation of football fans and players and leading the way for more people to get interested in what is the same sport, but with some really refreshing qualities about it. Yeah, I think it, it can be easy to forget sometimes, I think, because football is so popular, just how bad England have been on the international stage at tournaments, you know, <laughs> and it just reinforces how big a moment this is. Not even, this isn't just a big moment for women's football. This is a big moment for football in England, full stop, you know, and then specifically to the women's game. I mean, they can only hope the impact that it can have on the on the game in England is going to be completely transformative. I mean, I've never seen any amount of coverage or interest in, in women's football anywhere near what we're seeing at the moment, which is great to see. Yeah. And it was, to be honest, it's been really refreshing, especially in the, the final, because, you know, you have such a clear comparison to what it was like almost to the day a year ago for the men's Euros final. And, you know, all the ugly scenes that you had there, it is just, it's the same sport, but it's a very different environment that it's being played in. And to be honest, a much more welcoming one, an environment I think most people would want to be in much more than they'd want to be in the one that is, you know, fueled by so much alcohol and violence, quite frankly, at a lot of men's games. And when comparing what the atmosphere outside the ground, at least, was like in the men's final compared to this one, it was really nice, personally, I think, to see a completely new way of of watching the game. It feeling 
just as important, just as passionate, just as high quality, but without all of that dark side attached to it as well. It was, it's just been a joy to watch. And I'm, I'm so, I'm thrilled for everyone that, that was involved. It was brilliant. Yeah. That's the main thing. I mean, look, it's, it's a much more family friendly version of the sport and that's great. Um, but it would be hypocritical of me to sit here and say that it's, it's the one like I vastly prefer. And I think the truth is a, a balance between, I, I go to United games every week at, and games of other teams and love the, the tension that there is about those games and not the excessive consumption of alcohol and drugs and fighting and abuse and, um, all of that, but there is something special about a, a an English men's football atmosphere, and it's hard to have that special something without the darker side of it. So that's a, a big, big conversation for another time about how you find the balance between the two. But it's a brilliant to have. It is really refreshing, um, and it's a yeah. It's it, comparing the two Euros finals. This is by far the preferable atmosphere. It's just a completely joyous occasion with respect and and where everyone feels welcome. But your your point at the end there, it's, the main thing is, yeah, I'm just I'm just so happy for <laughs> all of those players and for the the pioneers that have been there in the past. So when you see Alex Scott covering the game on TV, who was a player in 2009, who was a player in 2015 when England finished third at the World Cup and came back to a renewed kind of passion for the game, but not just Alex Scott, also the people we don't see anymore who have put in so much, not just put in so much, but had to deal with so much and had to push back against so much to get the respect and the coverage and the funding that they deserved. It's, so it's not just, I'm, I'm absolutely buzzing for people like Alessia Rousseau and Ella Toon and Mary Earps and the rest of the squad. But also I, I can imagine the sense of pride and satisfaction that those people who really pushed to get women's football where it deserves feel now in the English game. Yeah, I mean, you can't even begin to comprehend I don't think the amount of time and effort that has gone into from those that have been sort of trailblazers before this squad to get to this point and you know for them I can't even imagine you know what they must be feeling at the moment thinking about all of the things they had to do you know, just to fight to even you know find pitches to get staff to get money together for kits and stuff like that and now not that the women's game is anywhere near you know where it should be but looking at it now with a sold out Wembley and the country getting so engrossed in women's football, like that, that path that it's on is such a, a an amazing thing to watch. And you, I think you can see it even in, in the way the players like react to the win as well. The, the women's team feels, to be honest, it feels so much more natural and, and raw than the yeah, men's team does. Yeah, yeah. You know, you can kind of tell that they haven't lived a lot of their careers under complete, Un- completely under the microscope like the men's team like the reaction of them crashing like the Serena Wiegmann's press conference after seeing it you never yeah. get that kind of unfiltered emotion from the men's team and and, and, that, and I don't and I don't even necessarily mean that as like an insult to the men's team or, or a compliment to the women's team it's just the environment yeah, no, it's it's so uh, different and it's been sorry it's, it's a natural reaction for men's players to kind of close yeah. up because of the way they, they are treated and I, I say this having yeah, exactly. when, you, when you interview a men's player compared to when you interview a, a female footballer, it's just a completely different experience. The, the United women players will open up and like, it's a conversation. Whereas with, when you're interviewing people involved in men's football, there is just that complete, it, I don't know whether it's, it's terror or just nervousness about what could go wrong. And yeah, if it's so much raw and so much more natural with the English I guess the way to put it is that like women's, I think women's footballers see time with the media as an opportunity because it's like yeah. growing the game, growing their own profiles, but men's footballers, it's, it's a chance to slip up. Yeah. Um, let's, and that's that's the difference. Let's let's move on from the kind of overall significance because I think you said this last time. It's not we can't just kind of talk about the big picture. The game was great, and Elton's goal was just yeah, was. just ridiculous. What a finish! Oh, that was it was unbelievably good. I mean, she was running through and just seeing like just just tap it to to the side, and the she was under under a bit of pressure from the defender coming back. But I mean, that lob was unbelievably good. And you see it on the replay as well. I sort of thought she's, she side-footed it like over the key, which is still tricky, but it's like, you know, you, you can, it's not that difficult to, to make it happen. But she sort of does it with like the, the top of her foot as well. It's like a, almost like a chip yeah. rather than like a side foot. Oh, it's just so difficult to, to perfect that well and to come down in time. Yeah, it was brilliant. And to be honest, I'm sure I wasn't the only one I was having. On the pitch, major, major flashbacks to the men's Euro final last year, going ahead, <laughs> conceding 
from, you know, just a, not, not a stupid goal, but, you know, a goal that you could do without. And it then goes to extra time. You're just thinking, oh God, like here, here we go again. But to be fair, yeah. I mean, the second half of extra time, England played absolutely brilliantly. I don't think I've seen a team close out a major final as well as England did. I mean, like the last five minutes, four, four also, of them were spent so in the anti, Yeah, so anti-English. Yeah. As in what we've come to, not anti-English in terms of like character, but what we've come to expect from England. There's never been an England team with the quality and composure to do that before, to be able to see out a game and keep it in the corner. And you're right, I think from memory, there was only one long hoof out from Germany that got themselves out of that top right corner for the last five minutes. It was just an incredible way to close out a game. There was a, there was a great, there was, I, think, I can't remember if it was Squawker or Squawker News, but they quote retweeted a thing from Statsbomb and Statsbomb had the, uh, like the, the passing maps from the last five minutes of the game. And it was literally just this huge mass <laughs> in the bottom right hand corner. And it was like, this is yeah. how you close out a, a, an international final. Yeah. Yeah. Brilliant. Um, the manager, Serena Wegman, first ever man or woman in men's or women's football to win the European Championships with two different nations. Well, I mean, <laughs> that's a serious achievement. Five years apart with the Netherlands in 2017, with England in 2022. That's just, I mean, that's probably, I mean, completely unprecedented. It's amazing. With the same assistant as well, I think. Yeah, I often I often think when, when teams bring in a manager or a player, but in this case, a manager, like, so sort of with the express goal of winning at give any given tournament because they've done it before. I always, I always worry because I just think like you, the bar is so high and the, like you're basically yeah. probably going to fail, you know, but I mean, the way that she managed the tournament was just, I was unbelievably good. I mean, they went through the entire tournament, never making a single change to start in lineup. Yeah, six like, six starting lineups exactly. I the same. can't. I, can't, I you watch like the, the Premier League the entire season. I guarantee no team goes six games unchanged, and that's in a, that's chance, in a league no. season. Let alone a tournament where you've got a bigger squad. There's more pressure, much more sort of pressure to make changes. You know, it's that. I, yeah, I, I can't believe how well she managed everything. I thought at times yesterday the game was sort of getting away from us, and you know she. Serena Veeman was so good at making the changes when they were necessary, especially bringing on Russo and Toon just gave us another dimension. Russo was so much better, was so good at holding the ball up, giving us a bit of an outlet that we didn't have quite so much yeah. when Ellen White was on the pitch at the start of the second half. I mean, yeah, she's, <coughs> Serena Veeman's put her a place in history, no doubt about it. Yeah, we must move on and talk about United's men's team. But final thing I'll say is the non-United player, but Jill Scott, who played in the 2009 final 13 years ago, uh, now aged 35, I think, pulled pulled an all-nighter for the celebrations because she said she didn't want to miss out on anything. And then while the team was celebrating in Trafalgar Square, it's, I don't know, it's, it's only, I think, in the last couple, couple of hours or so, but there's this amazing picture of her kind of joke interviewing um, yeah, the trophy. Trophy's got an England bucket hat on, and Jill Scott's going. So how are you feeling to the trophy? It's just like she's. I mean, yeah, they're all. They're all. There's so many of them have such amazing stories. And hers, I think one of my one of my um, favourite moments incredible. of the final was very clearly being able to lip read Jill Scott with yeah, some choice yeah. words. Let's say. I tell you what. She, I tell you what. My favourite moment was is apart from the goals and, and whatever, but the fact that at the full time whistle, the ball was just kind of stationary on the pitch and Ella Toon's reaction to winning. And I I love this because I think this is exactly how I would react if I was an England player and just won a trophy, just saw the ball and just kind of clarted it as far as, yeah. far as she could. I just thought that's like the most, just just the most natural reaction to, to like, even when you're just winning a game. Someone in the battling. crowd got that ball and, take, and has taken it home. Yeah. The ball that Ella Toon thwacked in celebration. Yeah. Anyway, let's move on uh, with a smile on our faces. And let's talk about another young Manchester United talent uh, to start with, Alejandro Garnacho. United played two games over the weekend uh, in Oslo against Atletico Madrid and at Old Trafford against Real Vallecano. We'll start with the, the latter one against Real and Garnacho, best performer of the first half, definitely. And just a, a, an exciting performance from him. Massively. Yeah, massively exciting. I, I mean, he got his chance in the first team at the back end of last season. It was having seen him in the under 23s, I think we all knew what a talent he was, but also maybe looked like he wasn't quite ready yeah. for first team football. But I've got to say, I think this performance against Rio, obviously, again, caveats of its preseason, Vicano are not, you know, world beaters by any stretch of the imagination, but was really, really impressive. 
in a starting eleven where other than himself and Chong and Ethan Laird, everyone else in that United team was first teamers. You know, will be expected to be either starting or you yeah. know contending for a starting place this weekend against Brighton. He stood out above all of them in the first half, and that's a testament to him how well he played. Every time he got the ball, he was dangerous. He beats a man with such ease. It's not even, and I, I love players like Garnacho where they beat a man not even really using skills. It's obviously it requires you to be skillful, but it's not really tricks. It's not flicks like like an old school Ronaldo, for example, or like a nanny when he first came tonight. It's just pure yeah. understanding where the space is, how the defender is set up, being able to read their body shape and go the direction that they're, that they're sort of allowing you to go. And he beats man so easily. I, you know, he yeah. had a few opportunities where he could have shot and ended up playing good passes to Chong a couple of times. It's not going to change that much in terms of making him a star, starter or anything, but you know, potentially enough in that performance to get him a start, a uh, spot on the bench against Brighton next weekend. Yeah. And the thing uh, that performance is the, the chance that, Ten Hag has given him there is basically this is obviously a, a, something that's judged off training as well and character and like how he was on tour and stuff. But it's also yeah a, a really one of the key things in deciding, for example, a player of him eighteen years old whether he goes on loan or whether he stays with the squad and plays in in the League Cup and Europa League or off the bench in the Premier League. So it's it's it will have a real impact on that decision. And yeah, very raw talent. But as you say, it's interesting that he's not it's not skills. It's not um, that kind of samba stage. I mean, it's Argentinian rather than Brazilian, really, in terms of yeah, style. Yeah, it's, that, true. it's kind of that raw, much more direct. Power, yeah, direct power in his dribbling. Not in. Uh, it's not power in the the way that we normally think of it. But it's just yeah, that directness and ability to skin someone. Even though he's not, he is quick, but he's not like he's not quicker than you see with many wingers. He he's just got that ability to accelerate and and read where the defender's body shape is and it, it's great um so yeah good from him Christian Eriksen, also it also go goes to show by the way that the, what a good decision it was to have these two friendlies because he yeah, definitely would yeah. have got it got a chance if we only had one this weekend you know actually now being able to give him a chance he's put on a put on a bit of a show and he's put himself in position potentially to you know stay at United this season maybe get a few chances with the first team otherwise he probably never would have had that chance maybe goes out on loan yeah yeah, and that, this is a big thing because there were some properly underlying problems and we discussed these last time and the main one being that United haven't signed a midfielder. The other one being, uh, I mean, we haven't made enough signings and there's the uncertainty around Ronaldo. Those are massive problems going into the season. But in terms of fitness, this is the best that United have gone into a season in a very long time. Rashford's spoken about it from an individual level, but as a whole team, this is very different to what we've had in the last few years. And yeah, the decision to have two friendlies, a really, really good one. Just because not only the chance is given to Garnacho, but to give the starters all kind of 90 minutes or or however much they needed. Um, two contrasting displays from Ericsson and Van der Beek, I thought. Um, Ericsson, some lovely moments. You can see the quality there and it's great. And Van der Beek, just not, not really showing it still. Yeah, I think it's an odd one with Van der Beek because... Every time he gets on the ball, he doesn't really do that much wrong. You know, watching the game against Rio, it's not like he's losing the ball every time he picks it up. It's not like he's he looks too slow or like he can't sort of live with the physicality that's needed for this level of football. It, it's he just sort of ghosts through the game, and it's it's a bit odd how you sort of look up and it's been twenty minutes and he's touched the ball sort of three or four times. And again, it's not that he's really detracting from the team necessarily, but he's not really adding anything either. Yeah. I think, you know, part of what made Van der Beek so good at Ajax was his ability to find space. And you often hear that phrase sort of ghosting into the box. It used to be attributed to Frank Lampard a lot during his pomp at Chelsea. And that was part of what made Van der Beek so good at Ajax. But at United, I think probably a few things, A, having to play a little bit deeper in a slightly different role in a bit of a different team. He's yeah. not really been given that opportunity to make some of those late runs into the box. And when he plays a bit deeper, I don't think he necessarily has the passing range on the ball to make up for the fact that his movement is, you know, he just, he's just not really in a position where he can make the most of his good move, good movement. Because, you know, ghosting through the game as a number 10 is okay if you pop up in the right place, but ghosting through the game as a number eight or a number six yeah. is obviously not not acceptable. So yeah, it's just a bit of an odd one really. And, you know, I think it says a lot that even with his former coach, who obviously got him to the highest, the highest point in his career, even with Ten Hag here, it hasn't really changed a whole lot about Van der Beek's traje- trajectory as a United player. Yeah, there'll be, I mean, there's so much time. This is very early doors. And, and maybe once Ten Hag's system comes together more effectively, uh, 
and more substantially, then Van der Beek will slot into that really easily and look good. There's still time, but it, it's not been great. Um, we could talk about Ahmad, who scored uh, a, a, a tap-in and had some nice moments, but kind of needs to bulk up. But I think let's talk about some some bigger things. Uh, starting off with how the team played out against Atletico. I thought it, overall that performance was, there were some okay bits to it, but it wasn't, it wasn't completely convincing, was it? No, not at all. I think it was probably the most worrying performance of preseason so far. Not not to say that yeah. it was a terrible performance, but No, if, it wasn't bad at all. It just wasn't it, it didn't it yeah, it didn't leave me convinced. Yeah, and I, I think what was what was concerning about it, maybe rather than it was a bad performance per se, was just that it seemed like we regressed a little bit from some of the stuff that we had improved a lot during the tour, you know, especially playing out from the back being the big one. We looked so comfortable on the ball, especially in, de- in defence when we were under a little bit of pressure while we were on tour. And against Atletico, at probably a, a mixture of them being a better team and pressing us better yeah, than we got yeah. pressed on tour, but also, you know, just a, a sort of a bad game from a lot of players. It, it, it felt like we did kind of regress a little bit. And we've said before that the results don't actually matter in pre-season. What matters is, being able to get used to a new system and being able to, you know, basically build up the good habits that you need to play in that new system. And that's, I think, why this was a little bit concerning against Atletico because it wasn't that sort of upward curve that we'd been seeing throughout preseason so far. It did feel like a bit of a step back in terms of, you know, not being able to play in the way that Ten Hag necessarily wants. Yeah, I, I thought it was evidence that playing out is going to clearly be a painful adapting process. Yeah. And... That's kind of what, I mean, it's not unexpected at all. That's very natural. But I was making notes in the first 10 minutes and I've got down here four times in the opening three and a half minutes where there was a problem playing out under pressure. And the main reason for that was De Gea's passing out. And he hasn't, his problem is he was trying it and, and that's good. And he's improved. No doubt about that. And I think he'll carry on improving and he might be able to do it. We'll see. But his passing is just the wrong weight or the wrong side or the wrong passing to the wrong foot. And just, and then he hasn't got in his locker that little clipped ball over to whoever it may be, Bruno Fernandes or, or the number 10 or the winger. He hasn't got that in his locker either. So he's quite restricted in terms of what he could do, which we all knew, but it showed that this is, this. it, it will be painful at times. The defence is an area we we didn't manage to speak about last week, but there have been some really interesting changes, haven't there? Yeah, there has. I, I think with De Gea in particular, it's an interesting one because he he can play out from the back. Like his passing is okay. Yeah. The the problem is, I think when there's any amount of pressure, that's when some of those little details start to go wrong. You know, I don't I don't expect De Gea. Like, when I say that he's not really suited to playing out from the back, I don't expect that against Brighton next weekend he's going to be you know passing the ball straight to. Uh, Brighton players every time he's under a bit of pressure it's not really that it's more those little details like you say Harry it's slightly misweighting the pass or playing it to the wrong foot and all of those little things when you're trying to play under pressure they can have a massive massive impact because if someone needs the ball play to them on their left foot so they can turn away from pressure and you play it on their right suddenly rather than being under pressure they're being tackled or they're facing their own goal and can only all they can do is sort of kick it out of play or hoof it upfield and when you are trying to build from the back, like we seem to be, those little details are what's really important. And it's it's an area where, you know, the likes of Edison and Allison are so good. Edison in particular are so yeah. good at helping Man City build from the back because you can rely on him to play passes as well as you would rely on Ruben Diaz or Fernandinho or Rodri or whoever it might be. De Gea, I still have my doubts a little bit. It will obviously take time. Um, it will be a bit of a learning process. I'm intrigued to see you know, a few weeks into the season, how we do with that. And I'm also intrigued to see how the players react to it. Because I think I have a feeling there may come a game in the first month or so where we have, we start a game poorly and the players sort of naturally revert back to type and they don't want to play out from the back. There's a yeah. shirking responsibility of getting on the ball and, and it will be the reaction that we have to that kind of moment that I think will tell us a lot about where we are in terms of implementing Ten Hag's system and how comfortable we are with this new way of trying to be more proactive, trying to be more confident and comfortable building from the back. Yeah, definitely. And it, it requires buy-in. Yeah, as you say, it requires that buy-in from the, the other players to allow the air to make mistakes, to make mistakes themselves and still yeah. try it again. Yeah, definitely. Uh, in, uh, other other things in the defence, inverted fullbacks. You've got some... Uh, 
some analysis on them. Yeah, it was just a couple of things that sort of really stood out to me in preseason. And a lot of it concerns the way that the defence plays in, in possession. Inverted fullbacks was definitely one. You know, it was something that came up straight away from the Liverpool game. Just how yeah. how far tucked in our fullbacks are when we're, when, when we're in possession. And it seems to happen when... So if the, if the fullback on the... Sorry, if the centre-back on the right-hand side, which for most of pre-season with Maguire, has the ball, it's then on Darlow to tuck inside. So whereas normally, if you've got the winger sort of between Maguire and Darlow sort of putting the pressure on normally Darlow's job would be to drop back and wide stay right on the touchline to try and create some space and an angle but now rather than that it's Darlow go forward and inside effectively give us sort of a third holding midfield option yeah and you know it's it's obviously been tried before Guardiola's done it a few times at Man City especially with Cancelo has been very good at it Cancelo now now number seven ridiculously oh yeah I know it reminds me of um, do you remember uh, well two guys Aruna Kone at Wigan as number two (laughs) and then Asamoah Jan at Sunderland I think was number three as well um, anyway, um, but yeah, I mean, was, I, like any tactical shift, it has trade-offs, you know, it means, yeah. yeah, you get that extra body in midfield. It also means you lose a body out wide and it probably forces the winger to come a little bit deeper, but it's been an interesting thing to watch. And there's been a number of times where it has actually helped us create attacks. I think what it's, what United have been really bad at in the last few seasons, it's partly why we've been so bad at breaking down deep blocks is that line breaking passes. We've been really, really bad. There has been uh, both because the defenders haven't, I don't think, felt comf- confident enough to actually play them, but also because there aren't enough players who are in the positions to receive them. This absolutely helps with that because it's so easy to break that first line of defence. The challenge becomes the fullbacks are now going to be receiving the ball in an area where they have much less space and much less time. So it's on them to A, have good touches and B, on everyone else around them to the other midfielders and the winger to make sure they're in positions where they can then receive the ball straight away when the fullback does it. Darlow in particular, I think, has been very good at it so far in pre-season, which impressed me a lot. Yeah, I I found it interesting. So United have appointed another coach or Ten Hag has in Benny McCarthy, the former Porto striker. Uh, who, who knocked United out of the Champions League in 2004 with Mourinho. <coughs> he'll, Ten Hag, uh, upon his announcement, said he'll focus on the positioning and the attacking. I thought it was really interesting that he then went on to say, I'm not saying only the strikers, but also the integration from the fullbacks and midfielders. Our way of play has to be dynamic. And I thought that was a, it, it's something we knew, but that was a, from, from the man himself, that is an insight into how, how important the fullbacks will be in this system in that slightly changed role from last season. Yeah, it was really interesting to hear those comments. Not not quite what I expected. I've got to say, when I first heard that Benny McCarthy was coming in, but, you know, listen, I think any any addition to the coaching staff with experience like Benny McCarthy has is going to be a positive. Again, it just all goes back to what we are saying before about A, you trust the manager and B, you trust that he can make the best use of the resources that he has at his disposal. Yeah. And all you can hope for when you when you bring in a new coach is that the head the head coach has a very clear plan for how they want to use him, and it sounds like Ten Hag does. You know that's the kind of thing we didn't see a whole lot of in terms of that specific for what the role is going to be under either Solskjaer, him bringing in his assistants, or with Ranić, who obviously had other issues bringing in the people that he wanted. But you know, it's it's just more signs I think that Ten Hag is I think starting to exert a measure of control over some of the football football side of what's happening at Man United, which is what we wanted ultimately. Yeah. The thing that isn't going quite so well in terms of recruitment is United still haven't signed a midfielder, namely Frankie De Jong. And these two games did show, especially with Jadon Sancho becoming ill overnight in Norway. And so he didn't play against Atletico. The two starting lineups showed a bit, a lack of quality depth. There is depth in numbers, but seeing kind of another poor performance from, for example, Alex Tellez, seeing Teeth Chong have to play, seeing Alanga is Sancho's right wing back up. Now Alanga is good, but United can do better than that and, and will need better than that over a very busy season. And and this showed, and, and midfield as well, obviously, defence is looking okay, but it, it, these two games being so close and having to have different teams did show a bit of a lack of a concerning lack of depth. Yeah, massively, massively. I think especially with Sancho being out, it really, really showed up the lack of depth that we have up front. You know, throughout preseason with him, Rashford, Martial playing basically every game or at least starting every game on tour, it 
I think it maybe made us forget a little bit about some of those depth worries. And with Ronaldo just being out of the question, you think, well, you know, we're playing well. We've got three good attackers plus Ronaldo maybe to come back in. But then, yeah, when you actually just get a single injury, you start realizing that actually, you know, this is really not a, as deep a team as we, as we maybe had thought. Elanga is okay depth, but not really someone you'd want as your first alternative in a, in a position. Yeah. And, then, like you said, you came to the Rio game the next day and you've got, you know, a talented, but, you know, very young and raw Garnacho Chong, who's been around for a few years now, has never really quite made the grade at United. You know, we've effectively got four senior attackers, five if you include Ilanga, and one of those is 37 in Ronaldo and question marks. It seems like he will probably stay at, stay at this point, but still slight question marks over whether he's going to be here or not. Yeah. You know, there is a serious need for some depth, especially on the right-hand side, which... I mean, you can just cut and paste that for the last, what, four or five years. <laughs> yeah. This is second part of our season preview. We should answer some, let's let's do some quick fire questions. First of all, in, in very short, what do you do with Cristiano Ronaldo in these first few weeks? I think you play him. Yeah. Simply because I think if you don't, <laughs> it's just going to, it's just going to make it even worse. I think if he... I, I don't think you play him to start with. No. There's a, there's a lesson to me. Uh, it's interesting. As I said, short, we'll go, we'll go medium. <laughs> um, there was an interesting piece in the athletic when, uh, back when Ronaldo signed for United, I think it might've even been before that, of basically saying how, like, how do you manage Cristiano Ronaldo? And the people who have got it right and had good relationships and got the best out of him have treated him in a special way because he's special. So maybe, yeah, maybe you're right. And you do, you do treat him in a special way, but I worry so early on about what that says about the manager, what the players think about that, how it could upset the dressing room, which is at the moment progressing really nicely in terms of uh, the atmosphere in there. So it's not about, I think it's mainly that dressing room atmosphere more than uh, bringing him back into that and, and elevating him to a state is higher than the rest of the squad. I think is five years ago. Okay. But right now I, I'd have concerns about that. So I, I think I wouldn't play him to start with. I think, I understand all of that. My worry is that I think the worst possible thing for this dressing room, the unity that's been shown in preseason is an unhappy Cristiano Ronaldo. Yeah. Because I think he is such a big presence and is so unafraid of of making it clear that he's unhappy that I think that, like I don't see if it's, Ronaldo's such a big player, I don't see if he's unhappy I don't see the dressing room sort of exiling him and say that, staying but, United as a group. But Ronaldo isn't part of he he is a bit distant from the rest of the squad on a day-to-day basis. He trains with them, he's together in all of that sense when for all throughout last season, but he is not part of the friendship group of, uh, say, the Portuguese players of Bruno and, and Dallo. He isn't a part, a very close part of that. He'd drive to training by himself, he wouldn't be picked up by someone else and, and all these things. He does his own gym work and whatever and he goes away on holiday when he's not being picked for big games. He he isn't a real close part of that dressing room. He's obviously a huge figure. So I think, and, and at the moment, Ten Hag is bigger than Ronaldo at United and w- and with respect to United's match going so The thing, the thing well. I, I guess my... I guess my hesitation is more that I, I completely agree that Ten Hag is bigger than Ronaldo. But if you really wanted to sort of send a message that this isn't acceptable, I think go all in that way and, and get rid of him. But there's just, there's no way to do that. <laughs> no, I, I know. But then you know United should have should have worked harder if that actually was sort of the case. You know, make it work. Yeah, there are yeah. ways that you can make it work. It's not like it's completely impossible. It's probably completely impossible to get a good amount of money for him. Yeah. Yeah, sure. But there are ways you can get rid of him. If it's that big of a problem, I think you go all in on this isn't acceptable. I don't want to play like this in my squad. If you're keeping him, I think an unhappy Ronaldo is the worst possible thing that we could have at United at the moment. Yeah. It'll be very interesting to watch. Um I, I, I wouldn't be opposed to I wouldn't be opposed to signing on the bench for the first game of the season. But I think after that, if you're if the longer it goes without Ronaldo starting at least sort of 75% of the games, I think the worst that's going to be for our dressing room without even thinking about on the pitch. Yeah, interesting. Okay, a few more quick fire ones. Who's going to win the league? Uh, City. Yeah, City for me as well. Uh, where will United finish? Fifth for me. Yeah, I, I seem to flip-flop on this every day. Sometimes I think third, sometimes I think sixth. <laughs> I think it'll be fourth or fifth. Ah, um, no, I think fifth, yeah. I think, I think Spurs will be strong. I think Liverpool will finish second. And I think... I think either you get an Arsenal who are okay in defence but have a inconsistent but sometimes really exciting attack, and that would that could be enough. If Chelsea aren't good enough, 
and if they don't get enough signings in and, and the atmosphere isn't as good there, then that might be enough for Arsenal to get fourth. It also might be enough for us to get fourth if Chelsea it is. I think it's all down to Chelsea, really. So I think we'll finish fifth. My, my official my official prediction will be fourth. Okay, nice. Positive. Uh, I mean, th- this one's much more hard to predict. Do you think we'll win a trophy? It, 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 you can predict the Premier League, but it's it's you just don't know with cup competitions. But do you think we'll win a trophy? I guess ever so slightly easier to predict. I think we'll make the final of at least one competition. I don't know if we'll win, but I think we'll make the final of at least one. That's a good shout, yeah. I don't think we'll win a trophy. I think, yeah, I think fifth and no trophy, but a positive season is to come. And that's okay for now. Although the the time without a trophy is really stretching on. What are the quick five top goal scorer for United or for the whole league for United for for United? Yeah, for United, I'll go Ronaldo with Sancho and not too distant second. Interesting. I've got no idea on this one. My my gut instinct is maybe to say Bruno. I'll go with Bruno. My, my, really... bold, my bold prediction would be that United will have four players over ten goals this season. Yeah, and not and none above twenty. Yeah, I could I could definitely see that. Yeah, yeah. Um, we better wrap up uh, just before we do. I'll just give you a very quick youth uh, update just on uh, Super Cup NI, formerly known as the Milk Cup, very prestigious tournament and one that United go to every year. Has been off for a couple of years because of COVID. The junior team, that's the under 16s won their section. Shay Lacey and Harrison Parker scoring in the final against Rangers, and the under 19s won six three aggregate uh, over two games against Northern Ireland under 18s. Great Sam Mather free kick is worth watching on the BBC Sport website and Jack, the Premier League is back. We've hinted at it but yeah, it's back. Are you, are you excited? Because I I was a bit hesitant I think until yesterday and watching England and that, uh, that's, that's kind of one of the big things that I didn't mention earlier is that win has really, that's got me excited for the season again and really kind of, what's the word? Refound that kind of excitement in me after a summer where I have been a, a little bit detached from things because of how scarring last season was. I, I'm surprisingly excited, actually, surprisingly for myself. <laughs> At the end of last season, I really felt like I didn't want to think about football for the next few months, really. And yeah. I've got to say, Ten Hag has kind of pulled me back in. I've been seriously impressed so far. I I, I mean, I'm sure I've, I've gone through these cycles before with, <laughs> with new managers at United, but I feel... I feel very confident in him. I, I really do. And I've watched a lot of preseason because I've been intrigued by the tactical side of what he's trying to do. And I, again, I've been impressed. I've been interested and I'm, I'm intrigued to watch something where I feel like there is a plan yeah. at United, at least on the pitch from Ten Hag. And I'm excited to at least... That's what we saw from Ranjik. Exactly. <laughs> and I, how many times under Solskjaer did we say, I don't, I don't need United to win every game, but I want to know roughly what I'm going to be getting when I turn on a United game and I want to know roughly the identity of this team yeah. and I feel like even if it goes badly we are we are going to get that this season so I'm, I'm excited for that yeah definitely and look Ten Hag is we knew he was good but he, he's come in and he seems he, he, so far very good in all ways in his character yeah, and his and very decisions. comfortable in, in, in yeah. the role which I think is a big part of being a United yeah, manager yeah Really like him so far and excited. And and I, I think at the moment, I think he's a really good manager. Whether that's enough to do what we want to do, I don't know. But um, I would back him to be successful if if the things around him at the club are good enough um, in this early stage. But yeah, excited. I'm, and I've always been excited to get back to Old Trafford for the social side of things. It was just the, the plain football bit I wasn't looking forward to that much. And it'll be brilliant. It's, it's a short break, but it's, it's long and short at the same time, isn't yeah. it, Summer? But yeah, I, I am I'm buzzing to get back to Old Trafford and see see people again and hopefully in a much more positive mood than when I last saw them, which was towards the end of the season in just a series of terrible, terrible performances over three or four months at Old Trafford. So yeah, I'm excited for that. Yeah, I'm I'm massively excited just to to be invested again. To be honest, like towards the end of last season, I think most United fans were very disillusioned with what was happening at the club, what was happening on the pitch, and we said yeah. there's no guarantee that this is going to be some huge turnaround. But I definitely feel much more invested, much more in tune with everything that's happening at the club and on the pitch. At least, you know, I have I have faith that even though this season might not be a success in terms of maybe not even making top four, maybe not winning a trophy, but I have 
faith that we will move forward this year, which is a nice feeling to have. Yeah. Okay. We're going to wrap up in the patron Q and a, uh, and if you want to become a patron, help support the podcast and get these bonus Q and a's at the end of every Tuesday morning episode, uh, then go to our Twitter at UTD weekly pod. That's P O D at the end there. And you can find out information about how to do that. Uh, this week we're going to talk in much more detail about Frankie De Jong. Um, um, the possibility of Neves or Tielemans. Uh, and we're going to talk about the difference between Serena Vogman and Gareth Southgate, which is an interesting question from Michael Byatt. Um, Jack, one last thing to mention. And keep an eye on our Twitter throughout this week for a tweet about our new fantasy league. We've set up the same one as we did last year. So if you were in the fantasy football league last year, you automatically be in it again this year but we will put it on our Twitter account anyone else wants to join there'll be cash prizes for the top three at the end of the season just as there were this year so look keep an eye on our Twitter if you want to join we'll be tweeting that just after the episode goes live today yep definitely I haven't decided whether I'm going to be entering yet I've, it, it took, <laughs> took up so much of my time and effort and energy last season that I, I don't know whether it's I don't know whether I can but we'll see I'm sure someone will convince could be an me. interesting experiment if you just if you Basically just pledge to make one team and stick with it the whole year. I've always been intrigued yeah. at how badly that would actually turn out. All right, I'll definitely do that at a, at a minimum. And then we'll All right. I'll decide in the next week if I'm going to pursue it further than that. Um, but that's all we have time for. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have, uh, please be kind enough to take the time to leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts or any other app you listen on. Uh, I think you're, you're able to do it on more apps than just Apple Podcasts these days. Um, but yeah, appreciate listening and hope you're excited for the season like we are. Have a great week. Goodbye. Okay, patrons, uh, we've just got, well, we've got a couple of questions from Michael Byatt. And the first thing I need to get out of the way before we get onto these is I did not go and see Top Grand Maverick, as I promised I would last, uh, last <laughs> oh, week. Harry. And I'll tell you for why. Um, well, partly the Euros took up a couple of uh, a couple of chances in the evenings where I wanted to watch that. Also then United playing on Saturday and then I went to... Uh, back to my parents' house for a few days and never got the chance to go to uh, the very cheap Manchester print works because I wasn't in Manchester. Uh, I'm not going to make a promise I'll see it in the next week, but I am I am going to try because I do want to see it before. It's one of those films you've, you kind of, you have to see in the cinema as well. So I want to see it before it, uh, before it goes out of cinemas. But uh, that, that confession out of the way, let's get on to Michael's questions. Um, <laughs> There's a really interesting one on Serena Vigman and Southgate, but let's start on Frankie De Jong. Michael actually had a couple of questions or comments last week that we didn't get round to or that uh, we didn't see in time. Uh, but then he's also asked this week, perhaps more pertinently, why is the club still pursuing De Jong when he has made clear he doesn't want to come? Did they learn nothing from Di Maria and Sanchez overpaying for a player because they don't want to join? Seems like a bad idea. It's it's definitely a fair point. I think, I think what's worth remembering is De Jong... I mean, everyone in this saga and yeah, unfortunately we are in a, yet another saga. Um, everyone involved in this is putting, putting on a show. It's, it's political and it's, um, it's spin from Barcelona, from Frankie de Jong's kind of party, his agents and representatives and from United as well. And so I, I just wouldn't, I wouldn't look into too much to what Xavi has said, to what Joan Laporta has said, to what De Jong is saying, to what Murta or anyone at United is saying, because especially with Barcelona, this is how transfers are done. They are done via the newspapers with pressure put on the buying club or the selling club or whatever. Or, I mean, we go back to Euro 2008 or something, when, or maybe the World Cup, I can't remember which, but when Fabri they were trying to get Fabregas to leave Arsenal. And the Spain players are putting a shirt on him, uh, a Barcelona shirt on him. Then it's like, this is how Barcelona work. It, it just always is. And so I just wouldn't. Yes, Frankie Dion has seemed to be saying he doesn't want to come, but that he, he kind of has to, he has to do that if he wants to get his 17 million euros. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, I th I'm at a point now where I don't think anyone involved in this saga is coming out of this well in any way, shape or form. I don't think this is a good look for United. I don't think it's a good look for Barcelona. I don't think it's a particularly good look for Frankie de Jong. I, I don't think anyone is doing well out of this and the quicker it can get resolved, the better for everyone involved. The, you know, the, 
the reports that we've seen about whether De Jong wants to join or not are are mixed, to say the least. And I think at the very least, you'd have to say he's definitely not either chomping at the bit to come to United or completely closing the door on it. Yeah. Because if either of those were the case, if he was absolutely desperate to go, it would have been done by now. And if he was absolutely shutting it down, we would have stopped pursuing it a long time ago. So it's obviously somewhere in the middle there. You know, exactly what's happening happening with all of this actually going on. Who, To be honest, who knows? But all I can say from from my perspective is, yeah, no one's coming out of this well. I think it's, it's to be honest, embarrassing for both clubs to be to have been dragged through this, especially so for Barcelona, because it. I mean, just all the stuff they're having to do at, at the moment is is not what you'd expect from a club <laughs> as prestigious and as big as them. H- having said that, you know, United aren't exactly coming out of this looking rosy either. But yeah, at least on our at least on our side, it seems like the intentions are, are good. Maybe, maybe just the execution isn't quite so good. But Barcelona, I think, are definitely looking. At, like the villains in this Absolutely, story. yeah. It's unacceptable. And I, what I find baffling is that De Jong's teammates are not kind of sticking up for him. Because it's not, yeah. it just isn't acceptable. And I find it mad because this is going to happen to those players in a couple of years. Yeah, the other ones have deferred their contracts. In a couple of years when Barcelona probably haven't sorted out their economic situation, they're going to say, where are my deferred wages? And they're not going to be there. Or they're going to say they're going to be forced out of the club without ever receiving them. And it's, I just find it baffling. There's no sense of unity from the players and all, all caught up in it. Um, Again, I go back to what, today, I, what I said last week. I don't, I don't know the ins and outs of, of, you know, the legalities of football contracts, obviously, but I go back to what I said last week, just when these contract deferments were agreed, how was this not put in the contract? What was going to happen? You, I have, you have to sort of look at these players agents for agreeing to this in the first place. Again, maybe there was a stipulation in it and Barcelona just aren't sticking to it, which given everything else they're pulling at the moment wouldn't surprise me. But, you know, this isn't an, un- this isn't an unforeseeable circumstance that one of these players might want to leave before their contract is up, you yeah. know, and it should yeah. have just been agreed in the contract at the time when the wa- wages were deferred. What happens in the event that we leave after two years of this six-year contract? Yeah, interesting today. We're recording Monday afternoon. Uh, Laporta confirming that the third economic lever in quote marks has been activated basically he, sound, he sounds like a communist leader from the <laughs> 1950s yeah uh, basically meaning Barcelona are basically selling off various parts of the club or so merchandise or TV or TV rights in this case it's Barca Studios so uh, the kind of the people who produce their documentaries and their TV and whatever so twen- just under 25% I think of that 24.5% of that has been sold to socios the very dodgy uh, <laughs> football trading cryptocurrency company um, who no one really knows where they get their money from uh, and scam fans out a lot of money, uh, sold to them for 100 million euros and Laporte is hoping that these earnings will enable the club to start registering the rest of their players for the season, people like Lewandowski and Rafinha. Uh, and the, the interesting thing is, in a, in a way, you could you could see that and your analysis could be, well, that means that the old deal's dead because now they don't need to get rid of him. But Xavi and Barcelona still want to sign more players like Bernardo Silva, uh, Cesar Aspilicueta, possibly Marcus Alonso. So they need to get their current signings registered and then they want more players. And in that case, then still they will need to sell Frankie Dion uh, and generate some money from that and some space on the on the wage structure so it's interesting but again we don't know what that yeah, means yeah and I guess to, to sort of bring this full circle back to, to Michael's question you know why are we still pursuing him uh, did we learn nothing from Di Maria and Sanchez I think firstly I think that's a completely valid point you know the club have seen in the past buying players that aren't completely enthusiastic about playing for the club and how that's worked out and so I completely take that point and I think that let, let, let's say two weeks from now De Jong is a United player you know, I think that is a, a definitely a risk of of going after him. Is that he's clearly not desperate to play for United, even if he is open to it. And obviously, I, in an ideal world, you'd want everyone to be desperate to play for United. I think why are we still pursuing him is just what you're saying, Harry. Is that there is just so much going on with Barcelona at the moment, and that the impasse isn't really with De Jong. Again, De Jong clearly isn't driving this forward, which in itself is a bit of a concern. But I don't think it's the case that it, De Jong is 
someone that is just doesn't want to play for United and would only be coming for the money. You know, and and to be fair, I think that was partially why it was so bad with Di Maria and Sanchez because a main motivation of theirs for United was the fact that we were probably paying them about 50% more in wages than anyone else would ever offer. And that isn't necessarily the case with De Jong because if it was, we would have just we would have just basically been the fools and said, here, we'll pay this £17 million of deferred wages to you instead because Barcelona clearly won't pay it just to get it done. So I actually don't mind the process that this is dragging out further. I, I, I don't mind it. Obviously, in an ideal world, it would have got sorted, but I understand why we're in this position given the complete mess that Barcelona are in at the moment. I think probably in my mind, another week, week and a half. And if it's not done by then, we have to move on because... De Jong might be the absolute perfect fit for United, but we cannot go into this season without signing a midfielder. And we said last week that it doesn't have to be that signing someone now precludes us from ever signing De Jong. If Ten Hag is convinced that De Jong is the player that we need in this team, we can still go after him again. But I think we can't... It would be so, so, so much worse to sign no midfielder than to sign a player who's 80% of what De Jong has. Yeah, yeah. Um Let's go to Michael's other question about, he says, is the difference between Serena Wigman and Southgate that Wigman sets her team up to maximise its strengths while Southgate doesn't? Both have a wealth of attacking talent, but only England women seem to try to use it to win games as opposed to not losing them. It's it, interesting. Um, it, this is always a conversation around Southgate that is he getting the best out of this England team? And it's tricky because it, during the qualifiers, it never feels like it. And yet at a tournament, we've got to a semi-final. We should have got to the final. We're beating Croatia. We wouldn't have beaten France and, and kind of shouldn't have done France better than us. But we probably should have got, given our run, we should have got to the World Cup final rather than just the semi-final. And then to a Euros final where we should have won the final. So it's been brilliant achievements, but we have fallen at the final hurdle on both times, but very good achievements. Um, but I think it's normally outside of tournaments where it feels like Southgate hasn't got the best out of this and when we're in the tournament we we look really good so I'm all I've, I'm always torn on this one because does it really matter what happens when we play in the qualifiers if in the tournament we're going to make another final yeah I, I think I mean very clearly Serena Wiegmann is a has done a much better job of coaching England's attacking talent than what Southgate has done I don't think that's in question but I, I guess whether that is the only difference and whether Southgate is wrong to yeah. maybe be a little bit more risk averse is sort of the bigger the bigger question here. I've always felt very torn about Southgate because part of me thinks, look at this England team, get into a semi-final and then a final in the World Cup and the Euros, especially given the teams that we played on those runs to that stage of the tournament. You sort of feel like, well, this is where England should be. You know, it's not that special of an achievement when we have a very good squad. On yeah. the other hand, I think... England have had great teams in the past and had very favourable draws yeah. in the past. You know, just in my lifetime, and we've got 24. You think about the 2010 yeah. World Cup, 2006 World Cup. Didn't even, didn't even the qualify Euros for 2012. Not in 2012, sorry. Yeah, exactly. Euros in, uh, was it 2014? You know, there's been so, no, not 20, 2016, sorry, when we yeah. lost to Iceland. God, messing up all my years. There have been so, so many occasions when England have had good teams on paper and haven't maximised it whether that's because of the pressure, the momental side of things or tactics, whatever it might be, Southgate seems to have a knack of overcoming that. Yeah, he's, so, he's changed his England team completely. Yeah, massively, massively. And and so for that reason, I find it hard to be that critical of him. But do I think he's a, a great single game manager? No, I don't, to be honest. Like, I think the Italy game, for example, the Euros one, I think he managed that terribly. Yeah, but, but then you look at Italy now that, and haven't, they haven't qualified for the World Cup. Right, exactly. And, and the thing so, is as well, we don't have, yeah. the tricky thing here is that we don't have the counterfactual, right? Like we have Southgate being this manager that is quite risk averse, obviously sets us up with three at the back. Don't, we don't have the most create, creative uh, way of playing as an England team. But we don't really know what this England team would look, would look like if we were really expansive and played with four at the back and were really attacking and, and you know, left ourselves open at the back all the time. We don't know what that looks like. It might be the case that actually playing like that, we might score loads of goals, but our defence might not be good enough. And so as soon as we come up against a Spain or a Brazil or a Germany, whoever it might be, we just get battered. You know, we, we haven't yeah. we haven't seen what that alternative looks like. And so... And tournament, tournament wins are built on keeping goals out really more yeah. than scoring them. Like I think it is worth remembering that I think you mentioned this in the last at the start of the last episode, Harry. That 
the gulf in women's football from the likes of England compared to the likes of, let's say, Norway or Northern Ireland, who we played at the start in the group stage of this Euros, is much, much bigger than the gulf is between the likes of England in men's football and Norway and Northern Ireland in men's football. There's still a big gulf, but yeah. England, the England women team are able to be a lot more expensive because the threat from the other team is so much less. Also, they are it, simply... It, again, it's the same sport, but a very different tactical game. Women's football is is a different, just in a different stage. And for example, bring, so bringing on players like quick young players like Russell and Toon ju- can just completely change a game. Whereas I think international men's football has improved a lot in the last 15 years in terms of quality and, and sophistication to the stage where you can't really do that anymore. Yeah. You can't just bring on a couple of quick players like Rashford and Sancho or Sterling or whoever, because it doesn't, it doesn't pay off. It, it, it doesn't have the impact because international defences are now just so good. Yeah. I, I guess to sort of reading Michael's question again, like is the difference that Serena Vegan sets her team up to maximise its strengths? Maybe, because I, I probably would say that Southgate, Southgate's strategy with this England team is more... Minimise the weaknesses, so, yeah. Exactly, which I think is why we play... Which is the midfield, style. really. Exactly, and that's that's why you play three at the back. You minimise the numbers that you have in midfield and also minimise the responsibility that the midfield has. Is that the wrong decision? I don't yeah, know. Yeah, that's because, a different like, question, is it? Yeah. So the answer to Michael's question is yes, that is the difference. But they could both but, be right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's interesting because you know even even in the final against Germany, like like the way that England England approached the final against Germany wasn't that different to the way England approached the final against Italy. So I guess that back to my point of like most games, England's women team can afford to play almost as if it's it would be like the England men's team playing someone not like San Marino or Andorra, but maybe someone like I don't know Macedonia every game. You know, it's like that golf yeah. is quite big and you can afford to be more expensive because the threat coming the other way is much less. But when England have played, you know, the likes of Spain and Germany in this tournament, we have struggled for large parts and have been on the back foot. And really the pattern of the final wasn't that different to the pattern of the men's final a year ago. It's just that the England women's team came through with that adversity, whereas the men's team didn't. Yeah. And I, 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 it's not that different and again, without knowing what the alternative would be like, I don't know if we'll ever be able to fully say whether Southgate's doing the right thing, but I think it is possible that it might be that Serena Vigman is maximising the strengths where Southgate is hiding the weaknesses and they could both be correct in what they're doing. Yeah, yeah. I think we agree on that. It's interesting. That was an, that was an interesting interesting yeah, question really. though. I, I like sort of getting, I like the, the sort of philosophical debate of, how you should try and set up a football team, I think is so interesting about whether it should be minimising your weak link or maximising your strongest yeah, link. I know. <laughs> I'm just thinking, I mean, what was Solskjaer doing? Interesting. Probably, probably minimising the weaknesses. His, uh, his was a balance, wasn't it? Because it was minimising the weakness. He was trying to minimise the weakness of the midfield and the defence by having kind of playing McTominay and Fred together. But also a lot of it was maximising the kind of counter-attacking strength yeah. and actually he came unstuck when he stopped maximising that counter-attacking strength and stopped minimising it that's, that's what went wrong so his was a bit of a balance but I guess it's I, I guess the difference is at international level you have to do one of those two things yeah you, you have, have such to little minimize. time well, so you have such little time and also you, you haven't got a choice you, yeah. you have the players you have whereas yeah a good club manager will not minimise the weaknesses or maximise the strengths. They will do that on a day-to-day, match-by-match, month-by-month basis, yes. In, in But overall, they are creating a team where you don't have to do that. That is the, the yeah. goal. So I guess that's, that's the difference between yeah, club. Yeah, because yeah, yeah, you can actually have control over building that team in your own image. Yeah. So at international level, you have to do one of those two things and, and that's acceptable. But once you get to club level yeah you are going to do that in certain situations but ultimately if if you're having to do that f- oh, after being manager for two or three years then there's something's gone wrong there either your fault or or recruitment or something else or a misfortune it's, it's just part of it's just part of tournament football as well whether it's international or club level that minimizing strength makes it you you naturally take a risk averse approach i think when you're a favorite for a tournament because one mistake could end everything yeah because it is just a one-game knockout. Yeah. Whereas if you're in a league season, I think personally I would stray more towards over the course of a league season. If you maximise what you're really good at, 
over the course of a season, you might lose a couple of games here or there because your weakness lets you down. But you would hope that you're, you make your strength good enough that it will carry you through the whole season. But it, may, it it's understandable why people become so much more defensive in international tournaments because it is just all about survival. Yeah, interesting. And then vice versa, when you're a worse team in that scenario, you maybe go a little bit more attacking because you ultimately have nothing to lose. Like in the same way that one mistake can end it for a team like England, one piece of brilliance can make it for a team like Norway. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I'm not using Norway, say Norway are really bad at football. It's just in my head because England played them in the women's Euros and obviously beat them like 8-0. That's what's yeah. in my head. Yeah. Um, okay, let's wrap up there uh, after an hour. Great question, Michael. Um, thank you for that. And patrons, thank you all uh, for your support. It's much appreciated. And we hope you're you're pleased to have us back and you've enjoyed these first few episodes. We will speak to you, uh, not this Friday, because there's no midweek game. We'll speak to you next Tuesday morning after... United have opened the Premier League season, hopefully in a very positive way at sunny Old Trafford, but more likely with a draw in the rain. That's a bad note to end on. Something more positive, please, Jack. (laughs) Have a great week. Looking forward to Eric Ten Hag's bald head shining in the Manchester sunshine. Exactly. Okay. Have a great week, everyone. Goodbye. Podcast Network. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.